welcome to Finding the Center. I'm your host, Joseph Camacho. Thank you for being with me today. And I'm really excited about today's episode because this is going to be the first in a series of episodes that talk about some of the major issues facing 2020 presidential campaigns on the Democratic side through the primary, and of course, in the general between Donald Trump and whoever the eventual nominee is, Joe Biden, excuse me, something in my throat there. And so with this episode focusing on healthcare, I'm going to be using a Vox article entitled Real Differences Between the 2020 Democrats' Healthcare Plans Explained. As always, I'll link this source and any others that I use into the show notes, including the healthcare plans from each candidate's website. So the first thing that I thought we should establish is how do we get our health insurance in the United States? Well, right now, about half of us get our insurance through commercial plans at our place of work. That's what I do, probably what many of you do. Another 15 million or so of us buy individual plans not connected to a job, but we purchase them on the Obamacare marketplace or the Affordable Care Act. So in California, it's called Covered California. I go there, I get to choose from a series of plans. In your state, it's called something else, and that's how it works via the Affordable Care Act. And about 70 million lower income children, seniors, disabled, the eligibility requirements vary by state, are enrolled in a state-run plan called Medicaid. Where I live, it's called Medi-Cal, California. For you, it's called something else. And then there are 45 million elderly Americans that are enrolled into Medicare. With another 27, I'm rounding it up to 30. There's, there's varying numbers. I've seen up to 35 I'm going to say 30 million Americans that are uninsured today. So with that background on how we receive our insurance, what would change? How would Americans get their insurance under the candidates' respective plans? Well, under the Bernie Sanders single-payer Medicare for All plan, every American will get health insurance from the government. And after a brief transition period, private plans would be prohibited. Elizabeth Warren kind of has a two-phase approach. She has a public option and then Medicare for all. So in the first two years, most private options would remain, as would Medicare and Medicaid, as discussed, and a new government plan would be made available for anyone to join. That would be the public option. It's estimated that roughly 135 million people, kids under 18, and people making less than 200% of the federal poverty line will qualify for free coverage under the public option, and that's according to the Warren campaign. Then, what Warren says is that she'd want to pass, presumably, Medicare for All in the Bernie Sanders model, considering that she said she was with Bernie on Medicare for All, which would enroll every person in one government plan and ban private coverage. And this would be done in about the third year of her first term in the White House. And then the centrist lane that is not quite going for Medicare for All essentially wants to take Obamacare, strengthen it, particularly in the areas where Trump and his administration has tried to tear it down and not only strengthen it, but then create a public option in which people can buy into. So we would have the private market would still remain intact. There would still be Medicare for the elderly population. There would be Medicaid for another population. And then there would be a new government plan that would be on the marketplace that anyone could buy into. And one distinction between Biden and Buttigieg is that Biden's plan allows people to just purchase it kind of in a one-off, whereas Buttigieg's plan allows whole organizations 
to buy into the government plan. So if you work for Sears and Sears no longer wants to go with private insurer A because they're too expensive, they can then take all of their money that they spend on their employees' health care and put those monies towards a group plan on the public option. And the idea behind that is that it would cost less and your premiums would be lower and all of that. So it's the power of kind of a group buy into the public option versus the individual. So knowing what we know about how each candidate would roll out their respective health plans, the next question is how much would people pay under these plans? And a point of clarification, the question is intended not to try and explain how much it would cost for the whole plan to exist in and of itself per each candidate, but rather how much you and I would spend out of our own wallets each time we went to access healthcare via one of these plans. Through the Bernie Sanders single-payer Medicare for All plan, there is no cost sharing. So when you show up and you want to get any type of services, you're not going to pay any deductibles, you're not going to have any monthly premiums, and you're not going to have any co-pays. And if you have health insurance, you already know what that means. I'll get into it in a moment. The only thing that you will have is an annual $200 deductible for pharmaceuticals under the Bernie Sanders plan. So don't expect on paying more than $200 a year for health care out of pocket when you go to receive services on the spot. Under Elizabeth Warren's plan, the public option that Warren promises to pass in the first year of her presidency would have no annual deductible and a low cost sharing. doesn't specify, just says it's low. And with the plan covering about 90% of medical costs on average. Now, Warren says that she'll also increase tax subsidies available to purchase private insurance through Obamacare, and premiums will be capped at 5% of income. Warren then pledges to end cost-sharing for everybody under the single-payer government insurance program she says she will eventually pass, but doesn't have a specific timeline for choosing that. Now, we saw a moment ago it was supposed to be maybe the third year, but so essentially she will have a public option and she will increase subsidies so that if you purchase from a private provider on the Obamacare exchange, that your out-of-pocket costs will be lower. And if you go with a public option, your costs will be lower. And then eventually, you'll move to something very close or exactly the same as the Bernie Sanders model, Medicare for All. Now, kind of the Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, and others, the public option is as public as it gets model. Under these options, consumers will receive more premium assistance from the federal government, which is kind of like what Warren would do in step two of her plan. So subsidies would go out to more Americans to make those monthly premiums more affordable. Obamacare currently limits those tax subsidies to lower income brackets, but the new plans under Buttigieg and Biden would extend them higher into the tax income bracket. So right now, if you went onto the Obamacare exchange, it might, depending on what your income is, be a little expensive still and not as affordable as you thought it might have been. Their plan is actually to take those subsidies and make them greater so that those monthly expenses will be lower and your out-of-pocket costs, of course, will go down as well. Now, each of these plans that have a public option or, and basically if it's not Medicare for all, have different kind of formulas or it might say, we're going to cap what you spend on healthcare at 10% or 6% of your income. So I'm not going to detail each of the plans and what percentage that they're going to cap what at and how the tax breaks are going to break down and all of that. I mean, that's, that's kind of getting into the weeds. 
but just know that there will be increased subsidies so that what you pay month to month will be lower than anything you've paid up until now. So another question as it pertains to each candidate's respective plans is what medical services are covered? So right now, most of the Democratic nominees agree that health insurance should be more comprehensive. Now, the more progressive plans take it a step further by adding some more benefits than maybe the more moderate ones. But either plan agrees, essentially, that more needs to be provided as a basic level of health insurance. And so, for example, I have three medical plans, so to speak. I have a Kaiser plan where I go for primary care and hospital-related things. I have a dental plan, and I have a vision plan. And Democrats essentially want to kind of consolidate that into one health care plan. So let's talk about which health care plan under which candidate is going to cover what. Under Sanders, all essential health benefits, which would be hospital care, physician visits, prescription drugs, mental health care, maternity care, kind of so on and so forth, all of that will maintain what is already in Obamacare, but will include community-based long-term care, uh, home-based care, dental, vision, and medical transportation. Under the Warren plan, you see all of the same benefits under the Sanders plan, except for under Sanders, it's home and community-based long-term care. Under the Warren plan, it is long-term care. So there is a slight distinction there. Well, depending on whether or not you require those services, the distinction may not be slight, but it is not a huge distinction between the two plans. And as we look at the public option grouping, the essential health care benefits that you see under Obamacare, of course, will maintain as well, including the rolling in of vision and dental. Now, Buttigieg is proposing a separate universal long-term care program that would pay $90 a day for basic in-home services. And Biden would introduce tax credits that people could use to offset the costs of long-term care. So there's a big difference now between care being provided as a standard measure of your benefit and where you are now going to have to, as it pertains to long-term care, you'll have to buy that kind of as a separate policy in the way that we do now with vision and dental, or at least in the way that I do now. Now, kind of circling back to a previous question that I had to clarify, how are these plans going to be paid for? And I think the more concerning question for folks is how much taxes would have to be raised? Because, hey, having health insurance and all types of different health care and spending very little at the time when you need to get it and hoping and presuming that it's there when you want it and you're not waiting way too long, all those kind of concerns that people have, one of them is also how do you pay for it? Sanders has been pretty upfront about what taxes are going to look like. Warren got a little bogged down in the weeds because she kind of had to have all these, you know, she has like a plan for her plan. So she really had to kind of break it down into the minutia and, and it's kind of taken some flack for that process that she went through. Now for the rest of the candidates who are stopping at the public option water's edge and are not quite making the leap to Medicare for all, they're using how it's going to be paid for and the trillions of dollars and the price tag and there's no CBO, Congressional Budget Office estimate yet, but they're using that as a way to attack the progressive proposals as not feasible and as a tax hike and as something that our country can't afford while claiming that their plans are far more affordable and do a lot to close the gap of the uninsured while bringing down costs for everybody else. 
So the question is, what's going to happen with taxes then? How is it going to pay for itself, so to speak? So under Bernie Sanders' single-payer Medicare for All, he has put out a list of possible financing options concentrated basically on taxing the wealthy and getting contributions from employers. So new taxes would be introduced to replace private insurance premiums. And the question is, how much is he going to need to raise? The Sanders campaign has said it's going to be about $17 trillion, while outside estimates place the number in the 20s up to 30 maybe even more trillions of dollars. Sanders has been very upfront that taxes will go up for just about everybody. However, his claim is that you'll be spending less on healthcare overall. So in the end, it's a net gain for you. Your taxes go up, but your yearly or annual healthcare costs go down. So you save some money in the end. That's essentially his argument. Now, Elizabeth Warren's public option and then transition into Medicare for All She's released, of course, a financing plan that covers $21 trillion over 10 years for her Medicare for All program. And that's what her campaign came up with after accounting for state government contributions and projected savings and things like that to prevent middle class tax increases, which Sanders has kind of admitted would be part of the whole mix. Her plan is to ask employers to continue to make the payments equivalent to what they're currently paying for the workers' health care so that employers would continue paying into the group plan for the public option. It would just the public option would be Medicare for all. And then there would also be taxes on the very, very wealthy and on financial transactions to cover most of the rest. So it's not clear that everything is paid for. It's also not clear that it's only going to be $21 trillion. However, her plan is a little more specific as opposed to Sanders' plan, who just kind of has a list of things that can probably be taxed. Now, for the remaining candidates, the public option warriors, theirs are much cheaper by comparison, and that's because their plans are less generous. We talked about how they would provide fewer benefits, and they would cover fewer people, right? So we're, we're looking at not covering everyone, maybe 90% of people. Most of the remaining $30 million that are uninsured may become insured, but it's not everybody. So not as many people, not as many benefits. Biden's campaign says that his proposal should cost about $750 billion over 10 years, while Buttigieg says his would cost twice that at about $1.5 trillion. And that would be partially paid for by premiums from enrollees. So a monthly payment, that is anyone that has health insurance, pays X amount per month, like car insurance. Taxes on the wealthy or industry can cover much of the rest. And then if more Americans enroll in the public option, then you can see the cost of that plan increasing and perhaps there being more need to raise more revenue at that time. Now, one of the biggest concerns around a move away from a completely private market towards either a competitive market with a public option or a Medicare for all is how much are doctors and hospitals paid. So, of course, the healthcare industry as a whole views any expansion of the government into the healthcare industry as an existential threat. Now, under the single-payer Medicare for all option, that's just flat-out extinction. And then when your industry is faced with a competitor, in this case will be the government, that offers a public option, well, now that competitor is going to have somewhat of a competitive advantage because they don't have shareholders and profits and things like that to worry about. Instead, they can redirect all of their resources towards quality of care and trying to negotiate better prices and, and those types of things. So doctors are also divided. 
There are some major trade associations that have been opposed to single payer because of the government price controls. And so private insurers will pay double Medicare's prices for the same healthcare service. So if you go get an MRI or you go get something done, Medicare is only going to pay you as a medical provider. They're only going to pay you so much for that MRI. Whereas if you go into the private insurance market, you can kind of charge whatever you want. So they're not always incentivized to take Medicaid or Medicare patients because of the price controls that are placed on top of what they can charge for that service. So how would the reimbursements kind of work under the respective candidates and their programs? Well, under the single-payer Bernie Medicare for All program, his is the most aggressive, and it would set up a national health care budget capping how much Medicare would pay overall for medical services in a given year. So those payments would be based on current Medicare rates, and those are, as I said, substantially lower than insurance rates on average. Elizabeth Warren, once again, kind of splitting the difference. The public option plan would initially pay providers at a higher rate than Medicare currently provides. But the campaign expects that those rates would come down as more people enroll in the public program and it would give it more leverage of providers. So it's not quite set in stone what those numbers would look like, particularly even if she gets from the public option phase into the third step, which is Medicare for all. And then the Biden, Buttigieg, public option warriors, those candidates would promise to negotiate rates lower than what private insurance currently offers. And that can include, of course, pharmaceuticals as well. But they leave those details to the health department's discretion. It's not clear if they're talking about health and human services, which is the federal department that would handle some of these things, or if they're talking about the each state has like a health insurance adjuster or regulator but that person, and it varies by state, can put some type of controls on the cost of health care in some way. Some states, they don't really do anything. and others, they have a little more control over that. So it's not clear under these programs that they're talking about federal or state. I'm going to take it as federal because these would be federal plans. But because they're keeping the state markets intact um, through Obamacare, it's, it's hard to say. So now that we kind of know how people get health care, now that we've talked about how they would get health care under these new plans, now that we know how much people are paying, how much they will pay if these plans are passed, and we, got, we can see kind of what medical services are going to be provided, and basically they're going to be increased across the board, and we're starting to get somewhat of an idea of what it's going to cost us as far as on the tax and revenue side. What we do know is that as a country, we spend way more per capita on health care than anyone else. Back in 2017, the United States was spending $10,000 per person on health care per year. And by comparison, Canada was spending $4,800 per person and the United Kingdom $4,200. So what that tells us is that having an industry that is for profit is costing us a lot of money. And not just that, it's impacting our lives, it's impacting our communities, it's impacting health outcomes, and it impacts the economy as well as the national debt and the deficit. Ultimately, I believe that healthcare is a human right. I don't think that anyone that is higher, equal, or lower than I on the socioeconomic scale should be subject to a lower quality of life, to foreclosure, to poverty, to being stuck in a job because you can't move, because your health insurance is tied to that job. I mean, just a loss of opportunity, I mean, to me, the profitability of the industry is not more important than that freedom to be who you want to be as an individual. 
And so in this way, I think that we've made a huge error in the United States in that even though we're uncomfortable with, and I'm using air quotes, socialized medicine and government-run plans and how terrible that that would be, and look at all the horrors that happen all over the place, that's not a world that I want to live in. That's not okay. And that's not the system I'm advocating for. But looking at the system that we have now, where people can die, and all the other things that I just mentioned that are consequences of the system that we have, and that those things happen more out of the need of turning a profit than it is the need of caring for people and caring for one another. That's also not a good system. And I'm sure that there's a way, being the country that we are, that we can make sure that we see people in a more timely manner than we're able to now because whether it's the VA or some other institution that fails at times, that needs to be improved. But then there's people who never get to be seen other than emergency rooms because they don't have it at all. And so any type of insurance plan or a change in our market that would allow for more people to be seen more than never, that's an improvement. I think ultimately, at some point, we will probably end up in a Medicare for all system because of the cost effectiveness that it seems to be the biggest advantage as compared to any other country. Canada and the UK just being two of them, it is the hold on our lawmakers that we have a system that is not built to work for us. Because if it were, things would not be the way that they are. So it is fairly obvious to me that the nonprofit public option in and of itself poses such a threat. That's why it wasn't passed during the Obamacare reforms and why Medicare for All is viewed as the monster that it is. But that being said, the status quo is not going to work. Forget about the political spectrum. I'm just talking about humans that live across the street from you. So I do believe that a change needs to be made. And I do believe that we might even have to flip the Senate to get that to happen. And while ultimately I think the most cost-effective thing would be Medicare for all, and it's not just because I want government-run health care for everybody, I also care about the deficit, the debt, the impact of those on our national security, the impact of healthcare on our economy, how much it costs the government anyways already, the freedom that it allows people to move from job to job, the fact that people would not lose their homes, would not have to go into foreclosure, would not have to make decisions that are heart-wrenching and otherwise should never have to be made. That is more important to me than maintaining a purely market-based system. If there was a market-based system and or if we can take Obamacare and the public option and have comparable results to Medicare for all, then so be it. And I would be for that because it would, in turn, most likely cost less, and I care about that. But at this point, if I can cover 90% of Americans instead of 80% of Americans, and it's going to cost us a little more instead of a lot more, I'd rather take that step towards a public option and some positive change then go for some type of program or policy or a Medicare for all that is not successful. I don't want the status quo anymore. And I've, I feel that way for so many issues. Healthcare being towards the top of those issues, hence it being the first episode of this series. So no matter where you are on the spectrum, whether you're a Republican or an Independent or a Democrat, particularly those more on the right, this is not about taking away your health care. 
This is not about becoming a socialist country. This is not about having the government set up death panels and all that other nonsense. Because some of you on the right don't have health insurance. Some of you on the right are underinsured. Some of you on the right are stuck in jobs that you can't otherwise leave because of lack of health care options. Some of you on the right don't have the services that you need. Some of you on the right are unhappy with those costs. It's not a purely democratic or independent issue. It is a human issue. It is a problem all of us share. And if there's a way that we can do it better and save money, well, damn it, that's a Republican or conservative principle. And if that requires not keeping only the House Democratic, but also flipping the Senate blue, then so be it. I'd rather that there be some type of compromise to make sure that we can find an answer that works for everybody and that the American people can rally around. But absent of that, something needs to change as it pertains to this and a whole other host of issues. So that is my preview on healthcare in America as one of the top issues of the 2020 election. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'm going to end this episode doing something I always do and adding something new to the mix. The first thing I'm going to do is offer you my Twitter of the week, and that is Paul Rykoff. Paul Rykoff is a veteran. He is a first responder, and he is the founder of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Paul's a no-nonsense guy. He's very reliable. He's an independent. And you can find him on Twitter at Paul Rykoff, P-A-U-L. R-I-E-C-K-H-O-F-F. And not only is he my Twitterer of the week, but his podcast, Angry Americans, is my podcast of the week. Angry Americans describes itself in its bio as, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. An independent pod examining the great American experiment. Hosted by Paul Rykoff. You can subscribe at getangry.us and you can find them at Angry Americans on Twitter. I enjoy the show. They've had a wide range, a nice variety of guests, including Tulsi Gabbard and people to judge, um, a few other that you might not expect. And they also have some segments where they go out into the streets and Paul just walks up, asks people what they think about something, asks what makes them angry, and they give just a genuine response. And it's just average people. It's not political pundits. It's not quote unquote elites. We're talking about just New Yorkers and others who are just letting it rip. And I think that's really cool. I really enjoy the differing perspectives, even those that I don't necessarily agree with. It's always nice to hear those, and I like to hear them on his show, Angry Americans. Now, the new piece that I'm adding to the show is that I would like to try and introduce and feature some of the musicians that I've come in contact with in my life. And this week, I'm going to feature, selfishly, myself in a sense, the band that I've kind of grown up playing in in the San Francisco Bay Area. The band is called Orquesta Borinquen, and you can find us on Twitter at O Borinquen. It's O-B-O-R-I-N-Q-U-E-N, and our website is borinquensalsa.com. So please enjoy this track called Carolina, which is off of our newest album, Paquetulo Sepas, and it is one of my favorite songs that we've ever written and played, and I hope that you really enjoy it. So thank you for tuning in to this episode of Finding the Center Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Camacho. You can find me at jcamacho510. That's J-C-A-M-A-C-H-O 510. Of course, the podcast is at Finding the Center Pod. You can email us at findingthecenterpod at gmail.com. And now you can reach us and leave your voicemail, comments, questions, critiques, sonnets, poems, haikus, you name it. 
give me a call, 510-210-3993, and maybe you will hear yourself on this show with my commentary and or sarcastic remark attached to the back end of that. So that said, thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate the support. I appreciate your time. Enjoy this track from our Salsa album. And as always, take care of yourselves and one another.